0: Bible reading is taken from the prophecy of Habakkuk and chapter 3. Habakkuk, one of the minor prophets after Nahum and uh, just before Zephaniah. So Habakkuk, and we're just reading chapter 3. prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, upon Shegionoth, O Lord, I have heard thy speech, and I was afraid. O Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make known, in wrath, remember mercy. God came from Timan, and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His glory covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise, and his brightness was as the light. He had horns coming out of his hand, and there was the hiding of his power. Before him went pestilence, and burning coals went forth at his feet. He stood and measured the earth. He beheld and drove asunder the nations, and the everlasting mountains were scattered. The perpetual hills did bow. His ways are everlasting. I saw the tents of Kushan in affliction, and the curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was the Lord displeased against the rivers? Was thine anger against the rivers? Was thy wrath against the sea that thou didst ride upon thine horses and thy chariots of salvation? Thy bow was made quite naked, according to the oaths of the tribes, even thy word. Thou didst cleave the earth with rivers. The mountains saw thee, and they trembled. The overflowing of the water passed by. The deep uttered his voice and lifted up his hand on high. The sun and moon stood still in their habitation. At the light of thine arrows they went, and at the shining of thy glittering spear. Thou didst march through the land in indignation. Thou didst thresh the heathen in anger. Thou wentest forth for the salvation of thy people, even for salvation with thine anointed. Thou woundest the head out of the house of the wicked, by discovering the fountain unto the neck. Thou didst strike through with the staves, the head of his villages. They came out as a whirlwind to scatter me. Their rejoicing was as to devour the poor secretly. Thou didst walk through the sea with thine horses, through the heap of great waters. When I heard, my belly trembled, my lips quivered at the voice, rottenness entered into my bones, and I trembled in myself, that I might rest in the day of trouble. When he cometh up unto the people, he will invade them with his troops. Although the fig tree shall not blossom, neither shall fruit be in the vines, the labor of the olive shall fail, and the fields shall yield no meat, the flock shall be cut off from the fold, and there shall be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord." I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength, and he will make my feet like hinds feet, and he will make me to walk upon mine high places, to the chief singer on my stringed instruments. May the Lord bless that reading from his holy word. We're going to be looking at, uh, particularly anyway, a few verses at the end of the prophecy, Book of Habakkuk, verses 17, 18, and 19. But before we get there, I'll just give you a little bit of a background to this short book of Habakkuk, only three chapters. Not as much is known about the prophet, but uh, from what he prophesies about, we can tell that it was just before the captivity of Babylon, The time when the Jews were taken away for their 70 years' captivity by the forces of Nebuchadnezzar. It was really, I think there were about three campaigns, and eventually numbers were taken into captivity. So it's uh, thought that he uh, prophesied around about 610 605 BC, possibly earlier than that. And uh, he would have been contemporary, in fact, with the prophet Jeremiah and uh, prophesied during the reign of King Jehoiakim. And he explains in the opening chapter that Judah is ripe for judgment, but that also in their turn, the Chaldeans, who were the instruments that God would use, God is sovereign, and though he punished Israel for their rebellion and unbelief and their idolatry, their rejection of him, Though he used a pagan nation, heathen people, to apply that judgment, yet those people themselves are not guiltless, and they in their turn would be judged also. Uh, And as you know, they fell uh, when Darius the Mede came and conquered Babylon uh, at the end of the captivity. So uh, we read that in here. And he reproves the godlessness, the prophet does, of the people of the land and the idolatry, But he sets apart, of course, the faithful. And uh, we have that uh, well-known verse in uh, chapter 2 of Habakkuk and verse 4. Having talked about the wickedness of Israel or Judah, he says in verse 4, Behold, his soul which is lifted up is not upright in him, those that are rebels and unbelievers, but the just shall live by faith. So that New Testament doctrine of justification by faith alone is uh, found here and in other places of course in the Old Testament and uh, this passage is quoted by the apostle Paul in Romans chapter 1 and verse 17 in Galatians chapter 3 verse 11 as he expounds also the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And so we see again the comprehensiveness of the scripture it's not a disjointed account it's one of the evidences of the inspiration that it's given by one source so that hundreds of years later we have the same teaching simply have more light but no contradictions so from cover to cover the bible gives us the same message but we can tell that uh, this is about uh, the impending captivity i ought to have done that in order really But let me just establish that. Uh, Verse 6 of chapter 1 says, For lo, I raise up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, which shall march through the breadth of the land to possess the dwelling places that are not theirs. So this is prophetic. The Chaldeans is another term for the Babylonians that he was going to raise up. And then in verse 9, They shall come. All for violence, their faces shall sup up as the east wind and they shall gather the captivity as the sand. And in verse 12 also, art thou not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, mine holy one, we shall not die. O Lord, thou hast ordained them for judgment and O mighty God, thou hast established them for correction. So the purpose there is given, there to be judges and correctors. Of the nation of Israel, and so that was chapter one. Uh, chapter two, uh, we've uh, speaks of uh, God's dealings with men, and chapter three is about prayer and praise. So we need to just consider chapter two briefly. Uh, he speaks in this chapter about the majesty and the glory of God. He reveals to us or exemplifies that God is sovereign and Lord over all, over the whole earth. And uh, uh, we see his great glory expounded there also. Uh, And uh, he tells us of many deliverances. And in chapter 3, we read of a reminder of all that he has done for the nation of Israel. So in chapter 3, O Lord, I have heard thy speech and was afraid, O Lord, Revive thy work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make known. In wrath, remember mercy. So, in the context of this impending captivity, in the sweeping in of the hordes of the Chaldeans, this was going to be a very painful time for Israel, a very humiliating time. They were to be dispersed. The northern kingdoms of Israel had already gone. To the Assyrians, they'd been taken. The siege and fall of Samaria, they'd been carried away. And the ten tribes of Israel were lost. And we have the surviving southern tribes now called Judah, but including Benjamin also. But they too were now to be judged. But uh, uh, in the context of this, the prophet wants to remind the people of past deliverances and of the glory and wonder of their God to prepare them. And to remind them that though they were going to go through deep waters Yet their God was faithful And he would keep them and preserve them And so we read of his wonderful glory In verse 6 for example He stood and measured the earth And beheld and drove asunder the nations And the everlasting mountains were scattered The perpetual hills did bow His ways are everlasting Verse 7 I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction And the curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. So this might seem rather strange as you hear it. Whatever does this mean? What is he referring to? The prophet is likely referring to the way the Lord had made for the people of Israel. That thus far he had guided them. He had moved nations out of their way. He had delivered them from the captivity of Egypt. And he would always protect them. Notwithstanding the fact that there were seasons in which He would have to discipline him. And so we read these things. There are examples. So, for example, in verse 11 of chapter 3, the sun and moon stood still in their habitation. At the light of thine arrows they went, at the shining of thy glittering spear. And that's a reference to the book of Joshua, chapter 10 and verses 12 to 13, where the Israelites were confronted by the Amorites And in order to secure a victory, that most extraordinary miracle took place, where Joshua asked for more time and more light, and sun and moon stood still. So you can see that as he's told them that they're going to be afflicted, he is at the same time reminding them of past deliverances and wonders. And we need to begin to apply this to ourselves, because we too go through times of affliction, seasons of darkness, And uncertainty. We're not necessarily saying that it's always a matter of discipline, as it was in the main for these ancient uh, Israelites, but uh, uh, whatever the reason is, we're reminded that He always will deliver His people. We read uh, in uh, verse 15 Thou didst walk through the sea with thine horses, through the heap of great waters, and that's believed in a poetic sense to refer to the uh, crossing of the Red Sea, the crossing of the Jordan also. It is in uh, these poetic terms, but you can see a pattern here of a reminder of how the Lord had kept and delivered his people thus far, and he would do so going into the future. There's no doubt about it. But what happens here too, as the prophet considers these things, rather as Isaiah did, Woe is unto me, said Isaiah, for I am a man of unclean lips. And when we have a view of God, of his holiness, of his majesty, of his purity, and of his sovereignty, then we see how small we are, how insignificant we are, how deserving of judgment we are, how foolish we have been, how foolish were those ancient people. And before we rushed to judgment, we would have done exactly the same, We would have been no different. How sad that they had had these very deliverances of which the prophet speaks. They had been delivered from Egypt. They had been sustained in the wilderness for 40 years by miraculous means. They had been led into the promised land under Joshua and been given so many signal victories in unlikely circumstances. God had been faithful to them. But despite all of those things, they turned their back on their God. They turned to idolatry and sinfulness and carnal things. Their religion became hypocrisy. And they stored up for themselves despite the warnings from prophets such as Jeremiah and others. They didn't want to listen to the prophet, did they? They didn't like his message. It didn't suit them. They wanted prophets that said, peace, peace. When there was no peace. So, having had many, many warnings, and this is the method of God, if you think God, ever think God is unreasonable and capricious, that is, short tempered and vindictive and quick to strike, it's actually the very opposite. He is so long suffering with us, so patient with us. Isn't that a wonderful thing? How foolish we are at times. How much unbelief do we display at times? How slow we are to thank him and to seek guidance from him, to pray to him. At times we slip and fall, but he doesn't immediately judge us. He gives us opportunity to repent. He allows us time to see the error of our ways. Because though he is such a sovereign and wonderful and holy God, he is a father also. And we are his children. And if at times he must discipline us, as he did with that nation of old, then it's out of love. And to correct and to purify. It's not to humiliate us. It's for our good. So these things are the prophet is reminded of. But alongside that fatherly uh, love towards his people, remember the majesty of God. And Habakkuk did remember this. So in verse 16, when I heard, in other words, as he saw the vision and he could see the majesty of God, my belly trembled, my lips quivered at the voice, rottenness entered into my bones and I trembled in myself that I might rest in the day of trouble when he cometh up unto the people. He will invade them with his troops. So Habakkuk was trembling in a sense, not for himself, but fearful of the affliction and the woe that was to come upon Israel of old, Judah of old, before they were taken into captivity. And he had a view of the holiness of God. And uh, I wonder if we have that view. Do we understand that our Heavenly Father is the God of all might and all power? That all judgment is his, all justice is his. And that he will eventually have to judge those who oppose him. And so he has this right view. I wonder if we have that also. But he's an example to us. And we'll learn from him in the closing verses. As I've said, really what I've said rather a long introduction or covering of the passages. I want to come to more positive material, but we need to see it in the context in which it is set. Are we facing some loss of comforts? Well, we'll see how he puts this. So having covered those issues, as he comes to conclusion in chapter three, he says in verse 17, although the fig tree shall not blossom, neither shall fruit be in the vines, the labor of the olive shall fail, And the fields shall yield no meat. The flock shall be cut off from the fold. And there shall be no herd in the stalls. So that's the scenario that he describes. And that might have been literally what was going to take place. As the Chaldeans swept through, as he said, like a troop. As they fell upon the people. Cometh unto the people, it says in the previous verse. He will invade them with his troops. There was going to be devastation. There was going to be great loss and great woe. The people uh, would be taken into captivity. And those that weren't taken into captivity would have been in a very impoverished state. They would be in the land still, but all the great ones, all those that where the organizers, the administrators, the governors would be taken away and the people would have to fend for themselves and potentially there would be a great calamity. The crop would fail. There would be no fruit in the vines. The fields should not yield any meat and there shall be no herd in the stores. He describes what is the ultimate loss and calamity. And uh, this prepares us, because at times we will suffer loss, at times we will suffer difficulties. As a nation, we could even say as a world, we're beginning to get little hints of this, aren't we? Now, we are very comfortable, and as far as we can tell, very secure, in our secular, material, earthly life. But there have been little tokens, haven't there, that things are not all well in the world, That the political and military situation is not stable That illness cannot be kept out can sweep in at any time Financial security is not guaranteed That hardship might be coming And who knows Those are general features and factors But what about our personal lives Maybe some calamitous event will come Maybe some great disappointment will come. Maybe a serious health issue will be allowed for us by our God. Maybe the loss or illness of loved ones. The loss of our employment. Or just general disappointments in life. Are we prepared for these things? Now as Habakkuk has given us his prophecy. Before he comes to the positive. He set the context. He said terrible things are going to happen. There's going to be an awful judgment fall upon the people. But throughout it all, never forget that God is sovereign. Never forget that it's he that has allowed these things. That's important, isn't it? If things begin to go wrong in our lives, in our national life, then we need to remind ourselves that God has permitted it ordained it and there will be great purposes in it we trust and hope and pray that some of those purposes will be for the gospel if there are setbacks hardships if people cannot enjoy all those pleasures and entertainments and pursue every dream that they would like to because they simply don't have the means or the resources anymore Let's pray then that they will be made To stop and think why is this so We are not after all In control of our destinies Governments and powers Are not able to influence outcomes Ultimately Why so The weakness and inadequacy of man The problem is is We live in such a comfortable society Such a technologically advanced Time That we're kind of protected We have a It's a kind of superficial external protection. But it's very vulnerable. And we pray that if things do decline further, that this will be an opportunity for the gospel. And we pray too that we would manifest, as we're going to look at now, the spirit of faith. That we would resolve not to be downcast. Actually the opposite. And that's quite a challenge isn't it? But what we have here is the training. What we have here is the manual for how to deal with those things when they come. The attitude that we should have that is asked of us, that is incumbent upon us. And we need to ask ourselves if our peace is dependent on external factors that's really what Habakkuk is talking about here he really describes a situation which is about as bad as it could get doesn't he almost everything well everything he lists has failed all the crops the harvest the flock the herd he's saying even if all of those things are removed he will rejoice in the Lord and we'll look at that but before we go into that How dependent are we on our outward circumstances? Now, I'm not for a moment saying that they're not legitimate. House and home, income, family, friends, food, some pleasures, legitimate pleasures, absolutely fine. They're God-given. And with the right spirit, we do delight in them and rejoice that we can enjoy such things. But we give God the thanks for them. But the question we need to ask ourselves at times is what if they were withdrawn? Will we collapse like a heap? Will we mourn? Will we become uh, self pitying? Will we despair? Will it give the game away that after all, what really made us happy was not the Lord? Not our faith, not him, not eternal things, but external things. That's what really made us happy. And when they were withdrawn, the game is up. And we're now disappointed. And we become obsessed in trying to resolve those issues and to restore them, whatever they are. And we expend so much time and energy and anxiety and stress in trying to make sure that we have all of those outward signs of Success and prosperity and we're not saying anything particularly immoral or wrong or illegitimate The Question simply is do we depend on them rather as this morning? The Savior spoke about those who depend upon their wealth So there's a question for us But uh, let's look then When things are not under our control, what is going to be our mindset? Well as I said he couldn't have put it more bleakly but in verse 18 he says this Habakkuk Yet I will rejoice in the Lord And that's quite striking isn't it set alongside the scenario he's just outlined He's saying no matter what happens No matter how bad it gets No matter how dismal life becomes No matter how difficult I will rejoice in the Lord. Now that's not bravado. That's not stoicism. Like a soldier. We need to be good soldiers at times. And endure hardship as we're told in the New Testament. But it's an attitude of heart. Because he has a right view of his God. He sees beyond The calamities and trials and difficulties of these lives. He looks above them. He has the eye of faith. It's in a sense as if you could say. If everything has gone wrong. Nothing has gone wrong. All is still well. Now that's difficult for us. I appreciate that. It's counterintuitive. We're but people. But flesh and blood. And when we face disappointments, we'll be disappointed. When things go wrong, we'll become troubled. It's only natural. But we need to seek to contain those responses and to withdraw and to be as Habakkuk here and say, I will rejoice in the Lord. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. And the prophet is saying that our peace is not contingent or based upon our outward circumstances. It's based on something else. And that's wonderful really, isn't it? Who else has that security? Who else but Christian people, you and I, that peace of mind. You know how it is sometimes in those small hours of the night where you're fretting and worrying? That's when things seem at their worst, don't they? When you don't see matters in the light of day. You think the worst well, May your prayer be like Habakkuk's And my, my prayer be might like that, like that. It might be difficult We have to summon our will I mustn't panic I mustn't worry I must rejoice And James says this doesn't he In the letter of James chapter 1 verse 2 My brethren Familiar verse here Counted all joy when ye fall into diverse temptations or trials, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. So the end of a trial is that you are complete. You don't need anything else, wanting nothing. You are sufficient, And that trial, rather than having harmed you, which you fear Having set you back Having turned you out of the way Maybe all your plans have been turned upside down Maybe your life plans Maybe it's relationships Maybe it's career Things haven't worked out But that's for your good If you are responsible, or rather have been irresponsible and foolish then perhaps there will be consequences and perhaps in those cases the Lord needs to remind us that we've been impulsive, we've been worldly, and we'll burn our fingers. But often they're just things beyond our control. And it's how we face those trials that will determine our peace and our happiness. And so we read here, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord, I will joy in the God of my salvation. That's hard, isn't it? I will rejoice. Not just I will accept it, Lord. I'm not going to be happy. I think it's a bit unreasonable, but I will endure it. And hopefully, eventually, I'll feel happier again. No more than just accepting it. I will rejoice. I will joy in the God of my salvation. He says, and this is the right attitude that we ought to have in all circumstances. So to rejoice is a duty, really. It shouldn't be an option. And how wise to be counseled to rejoice. We're not being asked to be somber and downcast. We're being counseled to rejoice now this kind of rejoicing cannot be just that happy, laughing kind of rejoicing. We're not suggesting that, putting on a brave face. It must be an inner joy. Things might have gone wrong. There might be painful. There might be illnesses. We're not, pretend, we're not going to be pre- pretending. We have to deal with issues. We still have to be responsible But We need to resolve to rejoice And he gives us the reason why It'll be in the God of our salvation To rejoice honors God To complain inwardly And to fret Is to imply that God has forgotten us And that's impossible isn't it He'll never forget his people He's given his life for them He's promised to bring his flock home, to deliver it out of all harm. And so to complain really is to insult our God in a way as if he's not able to say, to hear our prayers or to help us. Paul says, and that's from imprisonment in uh, Philippians 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again I say rejoice. It's emphatic, isn't it? Always rejoice. Now, of course, it's obvious that we're not talking about external laughing and pretense, but it's a state of mind, isn't it? It's an attitude of heart. Always, in all circumstances. And he repeats it again I say, rejoice for emphasis in the God of my salvation. So apart from all the other blessings that we have, and we have many blessings, don't we? They, they say, you heard that saying, count your blessings, and it's just a saying that perhaps trips off our tongue and doesn't mean very much, but we really ought to review our blessings, think about how God has delivered us from so many things, has given us fruits of character, Often we can't see those fruits of character because hopefully one of them is humility. And we would never commend ourselves. And as the scripture says that when we've worked and when all is done and said, we are but unprofitable servants. But at the same time, we know that we are fellowshiped with our God. We know that he's given us privileges that the world knows nothing of. Insights into truths, divine truths, truths about our God, about how the world works, about why we're here in the first place, about why the world doesn't work, how things go wrong constantly, how it's impossible for men to live peaceably one with another, how evil comes in and spreads like a plague. No one can really account for this when they take God out of the picture they have to explain it in a myriad of other ways social conditions, financial circumstances political pressures, historical injustices yes of course they play into it but fundamentally we know it's because we are a condemned race and because we're sinners and there are tokens of judgment all the time and the policies and choices that men make without reference to God, are bound to be disastrous because they don't have all of the information. They've used their own wisdom. So apart from ordinary blessings, there is this fundamental and central blessing that he has saved us. Can we not rejoice right now in this hall this evening if we're believers? We're going home soon. Before very long We are secure Isn't that The biggest question in life Shouldn't that have been The biggest worry that you ever had What about my soul No matter if I succeed in this world Where am I going after death Am I right with God Shouldn't that have been The biggest problem that you ever had But that problem Doesn't exist for the believer That has been taken by Christ Our burden, our debt And it's secured in him It's not dependent on our performance He is the God of our salvation How much do we reflect upon that? How am I saved? Why me? What grace What electing love What had I to do with it? How is it that I have been given eternal life? And so we reflect as the prophet did here. I will joy in the God of my salvation. And uh, there it is. For ye are dead. And your life is hid with Christ and God. We can rejoice always, you see. Because that life is secure. It's hid with Christ. It will never be taken away from us there was uh, one of the uh, party that went to the South Pole under Captain Kirk I was of Kirk <laughs> I beg your pardon uh, Captain Scott uh, the great expedition in 1912 to reach the first pole uh, the South Pole first and I'm sure you know the account very well how that when they got there they found that the Norwegians had beaten them to the to it by a matter of weeks, and they found the Norwegian flag planted there, and they had so wanted to be the first. But in that party was a, a man called Henry Bowers. He was nick- nicknamed Birdie Bowers. He had a very prominent nose. Probably not very politically correct these days, but this was back in the early part of the last century. And uh, he was a naval man. He was actually uh, not uh, in the Navy. He was in the ordinary, uh, uh, a seaman, sailor, and uh, he records that when he was seeking the Lord, when he was coming to faith, he wrote this, nothing which happens to our bodies really matters. And this young man actually was supremely fit, so he could have taken pride in his physical prowess. When he was off duty, he went up the Irrawaddy River in India. Just for fun, he would climb up a mountain, scale a mountain, run great uh, long lengths of running. And so he was a supremely fit man, and he said that. And unexpectedly, he was selected for the party that would be going to the South Pole. Initially, I shouldn't spend too long on this, initially he was only to be on the, sh- on the ship And he was to be in charge of uh, stock and logistics and so on. But he so impressed Captain Scott with his work rate and his fitness and his cheerfulness that he was selected to go on the expedition to the South Pole. Uh, And as you know, they didn't make it. They uh, struggled back. They planted their flag and they had uh, hundreds of miles to cover. And uh, there came a point where they were just hunkered down in a blizzard in their tents. Oates, famously, had already left. And uh, the others were just hoping that uh, the blizzard would pass and they could carry on. But they knew the end would come, and they wrote letters. Um, Captain Scott wrote a a beautifully commending letter to Bower's mother, who he would receive. But Bowers himself made this. He wrote this letter and it was recovered when they eventually found their tents. God only knows what will be the outcome of the 22 miles march we have to make. But my trust is still in him and in the abounding grace of my Lord and my Savior. That was March uh, uh, 1912. So he was trusting in his Savior. He never trusted in his flesh he never hoped in his physical prowess in his outward circumstances but his hope was in the Lord well that's an extreme and dramatic case and I realize we were very unlikely to find ourselves in a position anything like that but it's just a great example of faith in adversity and rejoicing and then as we draw to conclusion uh, the prophet says I will joy." In the God of my salvation, verse 18, the Lord God is my strength and he will make my feet like hinds feet and he will make me to walk upon mine high places. He is my strength and that's important, not me. Are you your strength? Now this may be a tendency of youth, of young people, perhaps more than older people, when we've learned some of those hard lessons that we aren't that strong after all. We thought we could cope with various situations. We thought we could resist illness. We thought we had more command and control over our circumstances. And we learned learned through hard lessons that it is not the case. Don't depend upon yourself. The Lord God is my strength. And what strength that is, what power that is. Can he not deliver you from every circumstance? You might say to yourself, well, if that's so, why has he allowed this to happen to me? Why am I not delivered from this condition, from this unhappy set of circumstances? Well, if he leaves you there for a time, that's for your blessing, for your edification, for the deepening of your faith, until you can say, and this is challenging, I respect. I accept that, to me, to you. It's easy for me to recount it from here, but when we go home and tomorrow we face a difficult circumstance, how far away the, this counsel might seem from us. But let's recall it back to mind. I will rejoice in the Lord, the God of my salvation. He is my strength, not me. I won't be downcast. But you have to get a grip focus the mind and uh, think about these things. So uh, where do we derive our motivation to continue? It's hard at times, isn't it, in the Christian life to press on. The fruit and the reward is often so little. The opposition is growing. As far as the world is concerned, we're completely obscure. We don't exist in a sense. We've disappeared off the horizon. Apart from some external kinds of religion Formal types Of religion But true Christianity is, Has no Recognition in the world So in adversity Where do we go? How do we respond? So what can help us? The Lord God is my strength And he will make my feet Like Heinz's feet Heinz, that's the old fashion word for a deer and I think they have in mind a a deer that is capable of climbing up rocky crags, high elevated places, sure footed confident and can uh, navigate through difficult territory, through obstacles and rocks and that's how the Lord will make us, we won't be delivered from our circumstance necessarily but we can be light footed We can navigate them through prayer, through faith, through perseverance, through trust, through joy, like hinds feet. What the prophet is saying here is that he will turn our calamity into a victory. It won't be a valley of desolation, but it will be a mountain of victory. And he alludes to this. He will make me to walk upon mine High places That means that We will be Experiencing as it were That clean fresh air As if you're on a mountaintop So although there's difficulties On every hand You're breathing that fresh air by faith That your God is with you You're settled And because they're high places You have views Don't you You can look across the landscape You're not in the jungle You're not in a deep valley So though outwardly There may be difficulties If you have this mindset You can see the purpose of God You can see That's why God has done this God has allowed this to happen For the training of the church For the judgment of sinners For perhaps my own reproval I can see where he's going. We haven't lost our way. He is with us. And he will guide us and see us through to the end. Nehemiah, I'll close with this. You remember, in fact, Nehemiah, we're going fast forwarding now. Nehemiah, after the captivity, after the release of the captives from uh, Babylon, They were allowed to go under Darius the Mede and they were allowed to rebuild Jerusalem. In the midst of that challenging time is that well-known verse, Nehemiah 8.10. The joy of the Lord is your strength. That's the counsel he gave to the people. Nehemiah chapter 8 verse 10. That's your strength in the Lord. Joy and strength. Well, I think I've said enough, and hopefully that will be a help and an encouragement to all of us. Amen.